Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome to Prophecy Today. We're on the road on our way home for about a day and a half, and then we head down to Florida for meetings. We're going to be in the Orlando area, the Titusville area, and then over in the Tampa area as well. Looking forward to going south. I wish this was January when it was really cold up north, but uh, we'll go with Florida anytime, and we're excited about being able to go down there and minister among those Floridians teaching Bible prophecy, helping them to understand where we are in God's time. So glad you could join us for 90 minutes. We need that 90 minutes. We've got Steve Herzig. He's the National Director of Friends of Israel. We're going to be talking about Rosh Hashanah and the Feast of Trumpets. By the way, Rosh Hashanah is the celebration of the creation of the world. Looking forward to talking with Steve in just a moment. And Inamar Marcus of Palestinian Media Watch, he's going to be telling us about his successful campaign to bring down the Palestinian Authority Facebook page who was promoting hatred and terrorism. That's all ahead, so keep the dial set right where it is. But first, we go to France, and our good buddy there, who is one of our favorite broadcast partners, excellent on how he analyzes current events, and we do that in light of biblical prophecy. Of course, I'm talking about Ken Timmerman, a world traveler, author, newsman, everything you need to know comes out of Ken Temperman's mouth. Ken, thank you for being available, and let me get right to the stories I want you to cover. Iran's President Rouhani, while speaking at the United Nations this week, made the unbelievable statement that Israel is supporting Islamic State. Is that a ludicrous statement or not? Well, you know, it, it, it's, again, an, an effort by the Iranian regime to turn reality on its head. Israel is not supporting ISIS. Rouhani says they are taking care of injured ISIS fighters and making weapons available to them. That's absurd. Turkey is doing that. Turkey is Iran's ally, and Iran has been very favorable towards Turkey helping to build up ISIS right from the get-go in 2012, 2013, even before they swept into northern Iraq. So the Iranians do a little bit like sometimes you see the Democrat Party in the United States. They accuse their adversaries of doing exactly what they do, and I think that's what Rouhani is doing in this case. Well, and most of the time, as the Democrats do, some of the enemies, in particular of the Jewish state of Israel, do that without evidence or they make up what they're talking about. Well, talk to me about another statement that uh, Rouhani made. He said there's not going to be any peace in the Middle East until the United States troops leave the Iranian presence there in the Middle East. I mean, I don't think the United States is going to pull out, do you? Well, I don't think we're going to pull out soon, but we have certainly already greatly reduced our presence across the Middle East. Uh, we have more troops today, Jimmy, in Kuwait, 13,000 troops in Kuwait, than we do in Iraq, where we have about 5,500, or Syria, where we have 2,000. Look, this has been a long-standing Iranian demand. They have been seeking to push the United States out of the region since they took power in 1979. They attacked us in Lebanon in 83 with the goal of making us leave Lebanon, and we did. They believe that military pressure on the United States makes us turn tail and run. Uh, I don't think that is going to happen here, but 
here's the big the big thing, Jimmy, is is the Iranians today have much more capability than they did in the past. Uh, this is not 1983 where Iran would have to stage a terror attack through a, a fly-by-night proxy. Today, the Iranians have hundreds of thousands of well-trained guerrilla fighters who are not really proxies any longer. They are under Iranian command, and they are in uh, Lebanon, they are in Syria, they are in Iraq, and they are in Yemen. And we're hearing the Iranians today start to talk about this much more openly than they did in the past. Well, some of those additional proxies that Iran has in the Middle East, I've got a report coming out of Israel that Iran is setting up Islamic Jihad cells terror cells there in the center part of the state, Judea and Samaria. Boy, this is not going to be good for Israel. Well, that's right. And it, it's not the first time that the Iranians have done this. But again, it's important. Uh, they have been training these people apparently over the Internet. Uh, the Israelis helped the, the Palestinian Authority security forces to track them down. They've made a number of arrests, and they found they believe that there are more people out there who are being trained by Iran, again, with the goal of setting up uh, small rockets uh, in Judea and Samaria to hit Israeli, Israeli targets. But again, I, I really want to insist on this, Jimmy, it, it is tremendously important to see that Iran today is no longer Iran. You had an Ayatollah out in the west of the country just this Friday in a Friday prayer sermon say this openly. He said, when you look at Iran, it's no longer just our borders. Uh, uh, the Houthis in Yemen, they are Iran. Hezbollah in Lebanon, they are Iran. Uh, the fighters in Syria, they are Iran. The, the popular mobilization forces in Iraq, they are Iran. And, and this Ayatollah warned Israel specifically, if any of these proxy groups, or these Iranian-controlled militias, as I call them, are attacked, that is the same as an attack on Iran, and Iran will respond against Israel. This is really kind of pushing up the rhetoric and, and pushing up the red line an awful lot closer uh, for both Israel and the United States. Well, it really is. When you talk about moving out and including all their proxies as Iran, that's actually saying, hey, we're starting to develop that caliphate that we want to put up. And in fact, they threaten you, talking about threatening if you touch any of the proxies. Iran threatened this week, Israel, as they do almost on a daily basis, that if you mess with us, we're going to turn you into dust, and we'll do that in about a half a day. That's right. And that, that again, was this Ayatollah who, who is really unveiling the what used to be the secret Iranian strategy. It's now no longer secret. Uh, he's talking about it openly, that uh, Iran considers it is now expanded beyond its borders, and all of these areas in Iran. Iraq, Lebanon, and in Syria are actually Iranian territory, uh, belong to Iran, not just spiritually or ideologically, but territorially. That is a new development. That's very serious, very significant. It is very significant. I'm glad that you come along and uh, put that emphasis on it for those eavesdropping on the conversation. Well, we've had a lot of talk, the European Union trying to keep together that nuclear deal with Iran, the Iranian nuclear deal that President Obama put together. But now I'm reading that there's evidence that Iran has violated that nuclear deal since day one. I mean, they were never true to the deal that they signed. Well, 
you know, Jimmy, uh, our listeners know that. <laughs> you and I have been talking about that for quite some time, and uh, there's evidence that the IAEA has gathered right at the beginning of the Iran deal when the IAEA said we're not going to allow American inspectors to come in. And, and in fact, we won't send our own inspectors at all to your military sites. We'll let you tell us what you're doing there. That is a, a direct violation. Their missile programs are a direct violation. But now the, the significant thing today is, is the spinning of new centrifuges. So the Iranians have now uh, you know, busted out of the limits on the types and, and uh, uh, sophistication of centrifuges that um, they were allowed to do under the deal. And it turns out that they've been developing these centrifuges all along. I mean, the Israelis found uh, in, uh, when they seized Iran's nuclear archive last year, they found that Iran continued to work on a nuclear warhead design, nuclear weapons design, all throughout the time of the Iran deal. So this was a, a phony deal, uh, a very bad deal from the get-go, and it's a very good thing that the United States is out of it. In a moment, we're going to be talking with one of our broadcast partners about the Israeli elections and how the president of Israel, Reuven Rivlin, has selected Prime Minister Netanyahu to try to put up the next Israeli government. Now, that's another issue. We'll deal with that in a moment. But uh, talk to me about the prime minister. He's acting prime minister, but he's still in charge. He's making a statement to Russia. Iran must withdraw from Syria. I don't know how serious that is, but it does sound a bit serious, doesn't it? Uh, it sets down a, a, a milestone, and uh, Netanyahu's been saying this for quite some time, but um, the, the Russians obviously have not done anything about it. Russia, uh, it's in Russia's interest to have an Iranian presence in Syria because uh, the, the Iranians have become a strategic partner. And Russia, in a larger sense itself, wants to maintain its position in Syria. It now has military bases on the Mediterranean, an air base and a very large naval base at Tartus that um, it, it, it's been dreaming about for the past 30 years, ever since the end of the Cold World War. Uh, Russia is now a Mediterranean sea power in ways that they were not before. And that, uh, uh, I think, is something the United States is starting to take very seriously. We've seen them use their kilo-class submarines, for example, to launch missiles against terrorist positions in Syria. Uh, that's a first. Uh, we haven't seen it openly uh, in acts of war before. Uh, it's a new capability, and this, you know the Russians have been using Syria as a testing ground. So I, I don't think uh, the Israeli prime minister is going to uh, get the, the Russians really to listen to him that much. They pay lip service to each other. They have their own red lines that they don't cross. But there's a great deal of communication between uh, Russia and Israel, and they try not to step on these, each other's toes in Syria. And uh, this report, we won't have time to talk with Ken about it maybe next week. Russian military advisors now training a Syrian battalion to be ready to do the fighting that uh, maybe Russia is not going to openly be involved in, nor Iran either. Ken Timmerman, the man who covers geopolitical activities for us, he's excellent. We always enjoy having a conversation with him. Ken, have a great weekend. Thank you so very much. We'll talk again next week. Thank you so much, Jimmy. It's always a pleasure. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan's standing by. He comes to the broadcast table to give us his Middle East news update. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. 
The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung on the road again. Yeah, Willie Nelson wrote my song for me, my theme song as we travel from location to location, preaching and teaching the prophetic word of God. Just a couple of weeks in Illinois, we'll go through world headquarters in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's world headquarters for prophecy today. And we'll make our way on down to Florida and then into Georgia and Alabama. So look at our schedule. It's posted on my website, prophecytoday.com. On the home page, if you look on the left-hand column, you'll see schedule. And if we're going to be in your area, I'd love to have you come study the prophetic word of God with us. Well, we're going to go to Dave Dolan. You know, David is in a location which is a key region of the world as it looks at the past, the present, and the future for the Jewish people and the state of Israel. And I know there's going to be a New Year's celebration upcoming the first of the week. They have Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, and the Feast of Trumpets as well. David, I'm going to be talking with Steve Herzig about all of this in just a few moments on the broadcast. But uh, you were telling me before we went on during the break about the toast that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu gave uh, to his general staff this last week. Talk to us about that as we think about Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, Jimmy, every year it's traditional that the prime minister goes to the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces General Staff Forum, before the New Year's and uh, has a toast with them, and he makes some comments about the upcoming year. Well, this year, for the first time that I've ever heard him say it, he basically told the country, told the IDF staff forum primarily, but of course the country through them, that full war is probably on the way. And I'm going to quote him. 
Israel's proven capacity to simultaneously perform multiple missions, that's of course military missions, is about to be challenged as never before. And then he went on to say that before this, we've navigated affairs boldly and responsibly in several arenas, at times simultaneously, but not so far in a comprehensive confrontation. So he is acknowledging that a multi-front war is very likely right on the horizon, Jimmy, and we've had more reports this week of what's going on in Lebanon. We had, in fact, all of the Israeli IDF uh, lieutenant uh, colonels and above met along the northern border at a base this week to plan a war strategy against Hezbollah in Lebanon. They believe this is coming soon. And the chief of the general staff suddenly showed up at the Haifa Naval Port to inspect Israel's naval vessels there. And he said they're all in tip-top shape and ready to go. So the signals are coming from right, left, and center that Iran is about to launch this multi-front war that we've been talking about for some years from Gaza in the south from the east in Iraq, from the north in Syria, from the north in Lebanon, and possibly from the sea as well, which uh, was just alluded to. So that's where we're at in this new year, and uh, a very uh, somber statement from the prime minister. But again, he reiterated that Israel will not be destroyed and will not let its enemies uh, take her out. Thank you for that information, David. And the other top story has to be that President Rivlin, the president of Israel, has given Prime Minister Netanyahu a mandate to form the next government. What is going on as it relates to the formation of that coalition government? Well, Jimmy, yes, he did get the first chance, the first mandate, really, to um, form a coalition because 55 of the uh, 120 Knesset members recommended him to the president as the next prime minister or to continue in that office. 54 recommended Benny Gantz, the blue and white opposition leader, former chief of staff himself, a military man. Three of the Arab backers backed out endorsing him at the last minute. Now, some said that was at Gantz's request because he wanted to give Netanyahu the first crack, knowing he would probably fail to form a government. And, Jimmy, at this stage, the only way that he can do it is either to form a broad national unity government, as Netanyahu stated again this week several times he wants to do, or to get Avigdor Lieberman and his uh, Russian-speaking party to jump on board. And Lieberman has been showing more signs that he might do that. He was initially supposed to endorse Gantz, but he just remained neutral, him and his other colleagues in the Knesset, the nine seats altogether remain neutral, and so did these three Arab ones. So neither man got the 61 needed to actually form a government. So, Jimmy, and in light of what I just shared with the prime minister toasted, in light of so many things going on, and we could talk for 15 minutes just about that, we had major rioting again in Gaza on Friday, 7,000 demonstrators, over 60 wounded in exchanges, throwing Molotov cocktails at the Israeli soldiers and then firing back. Uh, you know, we have all these signs of conflict, and both men are very military-minded, both very responsible. And I do think an emergency national government, as I said last week, will be the final outcome. But probably neither side will be able to put it together until the emergency is upon us. And then I think it will be formed lickety-split, and I think the two leaders 
who met this week on Friday. They had four hours of negotiations. They're meeting again on Sunday. There's still many obstacles to overcome, but I think they must have discussed what do we do if Iran opens up on us in the next day or two or week? What are we going to do for the country? And I think, again, they would instantly form uh, a broad coalition. Talking about Iran, and I wonder what the response from Israel is to the speech at the United Nations made by the Iranian president, Rouhani. He said that Israel is sponsoring Islamic State. Is that ludicrous? Is that crazy? Or what is it? Uh, what do you say about Iran and its leaders and what they say? I mean, uh, their foreign minister is one of the, in my opinion, one of the most consistently lying people in politics anywhere on earth. He just comes up with stuff out of thin air. How many the overall leader says things that are just off the wall at times? And then this uh, statement, of course, Israel is not backing ISIS. That's absurd. Um, a force that's against Israel, a Sunni force, okay, but still a force that wants to see Israel destroyed just as much as the Shiites do. The only thing is the Shiites have a country called Iran and allied militias called Hezbollah and uh, Islamic Jihad and on and on. And they can actually do major damage probably to Israel, whereas Islamic State was not to that stage. Nevertheless, certainly Israel wasn't backing Islamic State. And in the U.S. campaign against it, Israel was offering strategic support, more than we can even talk about, Jimmy. But some of the U.S. airstrikes were coming from inside of Israel, not just from the Gulf and other uh, Jordan and other uh, bases in Iraq where the U.S. has forces. So uh, that's an absurd claim. But everything they say, and Mahmoud Abbas, the PA leader, also spoke. He made the same sorts of crazy charges against Israel that we hear periodically from. And he ended by saying, we are going to continue to fund all of the families of the Shahids, the martyrs that give their lives in, well, what are essentially terror attacks against Jews. We're going to continue to do that. Nobody's ever going to stop us from doing that. So defiance in the face of the U.S. And these leaders are, again, Jimmy, just begging for conflict. Talk to me about the latest information on Iran setting up Islamic Jihad terrorist cells there in Judea and Samaria. Yes, Jimmy, the Mossad has known for months that this is going on, the Israeli Secret Service, Israeli military leaders as well. Uh, they've actually, Iran has funded factories in several Palestinian cities, deep inside the cities where no Israelis patrol or no Israeli tourists go or Israeli workers are, totally Arab areas. Uh, where they're building homemade rockets. Now, you might say homemade rockets, you think of a kid in his backyard with something harmless, but a lot of Hamas's rockets over the years have been, quote, homemade, and they can build some pretty deadly projectiles today, and especially if they have the help of a foreign power like Iran, its money and its advisors. And we've heard that some Palestinian jihad members that have been totally trained and are totally under the control of Tehran have been sent to these factories and have been training also in uh, weapon use, in bayonet use, and these sorts of things. So they're attempting to take over Judea and Samaria. And by the way, Abbas said at the U.N., that he will finally allow elections to be held in uh, the Palestinian zone. Uh, the last one was in 2006, so 13 years ago, way overdue. But the polls show that if it did happen, Hamas might just win control of the government in Judea and Samaria. So it's an ominous situation, Jimmy. And again, uh, Netanyahu saying all-out war on all fronts 
That includes internally in the areas where Palestinians and Arabs are, are living. Some of them, at least, would be willing to join this uh, jihad in an active way. And that all taking place as the Jewish State of Israel goes into the brand new year, 5780. Quite an interesting celebration taking place on the time of the creation of everything happening on Rosh Hashanah 5,780 years ago. David, thank you so much for your report. Always key to have you, Mike, side with us here at the broadcast table. We appreciate it. We'll have another conversation next week. Thank you, Jimmy, and Shana Tova. Happy New Year. Shana Tova to you, my good friend. We're going to take a break when we come back. Itamar Marcus is going to be here at the broadcast table. We're going to be talking about the campaign of Palestinian Media Watch to take down the Palestinian Authority Facebook page. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy. Today we move into our second half hour. We have some very interesting broadcast partners that are going to join with us. Edomar Marcus standing by. There's been a Facebook battle going on with the Palestinian Authority. We'll get into that in just a moment. John Rood has a European Union update. And then Steve Herzig will come and join us. We'll be talking about Rosh Hashanah and the Feast of Trumpets. So keep the dial set right where it is. So glad you could join us for this 90 minutes of information, helping you to understand the prophetic scenario that is found in God's Word. As I promised, Denimar Marcus, he heads up a team they referred to as Palestinian Media Watch. And their website, palwatch.org, is a good website to have bookmarked on any equipment that you go to the Internet with. This will be a location that will keep you up to date with what the Palestinian media is really saying, not to the world, but to their own people. And Itamar Marcus deals with that on a daily basis. Itamar, I understand because I've been reading some of your alerts that you have sent out. And by the way, folks, you can sign up for those alerts if you go to the website, palwatch.org. But I understand, Itamar, there's been a campaign against the Palestinian Authority Facebook page. Can you take a moment just to explain what's been going on? Well, we've been following, as you mentioned, we follow all of the different Palestinian Authority media and we follow the Facebook page of Fatah, 
And we issued a report a number of months ago which showed that this page is absolutely a terror-promoting page. Just want to give you some examples. On the Facebook page this year, they referred to terrorists who recently murdered Israelis, quote, the ideal example of humanity, the crown jewel, the magnificent, the star of the night that guides the wandering, the ideal example, the perfect person. A murderer who killed two people was called the perfect person. A female suicide bomber, a 17-year-old girl suicide bomber, was called the Magnificent. This is happening on Fatah's Facebook. And we turned to Facebook and we asked them, you, know, you have to close this account. It violates your community standards. It violates your own rules. You don't allow your, your, your pages, your Facebook pages, to promote terror. And believe it or not, they have been refusing. They've been refusing since I spoke to them first, I think it was February or March. We've sent many notices since then of, of terrible, terrible promotion of terror, and they've ignored it. So we decided two weeks ago to, we issued a new report, and we accompanied this this time with a major online pressure campaign, public pressure campaign. We had thousands of people. We had notifications of over 4,000 people who sent emails. They had the Facebook. In addition, there were many thousands more who flagged various posts. And the result was that uh, two days ago, Facebook, Fatah's Facebook page, actually wrote that they were afraid that TMW was going to succeed in uh, having them closed completely, and they called on all of their people uh, to help them, to support them. They had three different posts two days ago where they talked about our campaign. And then yesterday, they actually unilaterally closed down their own Facebook page. They decided to do this in the press interview, that why did you do this? And they said, we did it because we're afraid Facebook is going to close us down, and we wanted to wait till the pressure is gone, till people stop putting in complaints, and then we're going to open up the page again. So this is an amazing success. We, we, we were able to bring such pressure on them that they have unilaterally closed it. But the important thing now is to keep the pressure up on Facebook and not to allow them to open up uh, the page again. Now, this is something that all of your listeners can help out on. They can go to our website, palwatch.org, and on the home page, they will see a way to get a pre-prepared letter that they can then mail to Facebook, uh, an email that they can uh, send to Facebook. And we have to keep the pressure up. This is a site that promotes terror. This is a site that young people are seeing and are influenced to want to be terrorists. Uh, we have to keep it down. We don't know why Facebook is being so stubborn about this, but we have to let them know that it's unacceptable. So like I said, if any of your listeners want to go to palwatch.org and join this campaign, it is very welcome and maybe life-saving. Yes, indeed, maybe life-saving. That's palwatch.org, by the way. Remember that, friends. Go there and see what you can do to assist in this campaign to keep hatred off of Facebook. By the way, they're using this media source and it, this type of social media is just as effective most of the time as radio and or television there in the Palestinian areas. But they're using it to incite young people to go after the Jewish people and, and endeavor to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, are they not? They also do that. This year, for example, what did they post on Fatah's Facebook page? They showed a picture of a man shooting a rifle, and he was shooting it at an Israeli flag, and the Israeli flag was all tattered and ripped in half. And I can't remember the exact words, but there were also words there that talked about the end of Israel. The maps that they use, the maps that they use have all of Israel marked as Palestine, 
So there's definitely that message as well. It's not only a message that Jews or Israelis uh, can be killed, should be killed. It's a glory, it's an honor to kill them. But they also have the message that Israel is illegitimate. Israel doesn't really exist. Everything is Palestine. Itamar, I wanted to discuss another issue with you as well. It seems like the Palestinian Authority, and that's the legislative body of the Palestinian body politic, uh, the legislative authority led by Mahmoud Abbas, who's the president of the PA, his cultural minister went on and said that there's no history at all of the Jewish people. They have no history. Am I correct? Is that exactly what he was doing? Yes, that's what they do. They, this is a fundamental part of Palestinian ideology. They know that there is no Palestinian history. Uh, there never was a Palestinian state. There never was a Palestinian president. There never was anything Palestinian. There weren't even people who identified, or I should say there weren't Muslims or Arabs who identified as Palestinians really till 1965. Uh, so there's no history. So they tried to create a history for themselves. They claimed that they have a 6,000-year-old Nations, Mahmoud Abbas has said this, all the top leadership had data. But in addition to creating a fictitious history for themselves, they are very insistent on denying Israel's history. So they tell their people that it's all myths. They tell, that ne- they tell their people that there never was an archaeological find uh, that, that relates to the Jewish people in the land of Israel, uh, which, of course, is all lies. There's all the biblical written evidence. There's all the archaeological evidence corroborating it. There are coins, uh, and, and there are there are stamps with the names of biblical figures on them. So it's all been corroborated, and the Palestinian Authority tells its people that it's all lies. Uh, so Turf Culture comes on TV and says there was no Jewish history. He's doing that for the sole purpose of telling his people, the Jewish people have no connection we have a 6,000 history. It's all 6,000 year old history. It really all belongs to us. <laughs> it's ridiculous to think somebody really could honestly go on the television screen or the radio broadcast and say there's no archaeological evidence, there's no historic evidence. It's almost, uh, well, it's, it's totally ridiculous to make those types of a statements. How do they claim that they go back all the way to the Canaanites? If there's no history of the Jews going back 4,000 years, how do they say they go back 6,000 years to the Canaanites? Well, they they say sometimes they're the Canaanites. Sometimes what they do is they say they're the Philistines. Well, the, the Bible talks about the Philistines. Well, of course, the Philistines were from uh, the Greek islands, and the current Palestinians are from Arabia. There's absolutely no connection between the two. But because the names have a similar sound, uh, they they decide to adopt that ideology. And by the way, that, that uh, identity. By the way, one of the most important people that the Palestinian Authority adopts, or I would say uh, steals for their identity, is Jesus himself. Mahmoud Abbas, the leader, has said that he was a Palestinian, and many of the top leaders have all said that he's Palestinian. In fact, some of them have said he's the first Palestinian martyr, which is very insulting because, of course, in, in Islamic tradition, the martyr is going to heaven and marrying 72 virgins, and to apply that, and that's what they mean, that's the word, shahid is the Arabic word, that's what they said about Jesus. So it's, it's a desecration, really, of what they're saying about him. Uh, by the way, they've also said that he preached Islam. He didn't preach Christianity, he preached Islam, and his his followers twisted it and turned it into Christianity. So 
it's a it's a they not only do they attack Jewish history and Jewish tradition, they also literally erase uh, Christian history and Christian tradition. Actually, I do have a study on the Palestinian people that goes back to four thousand years ago. And the person of Esau, twin brother of Jacob, of course, Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. But Esau became the Edomites, ultimately, and I can trace it all the way to Yasser Arafat and beyond. Ridiculous what these people in the Palestinian Authority, even supposedly leaders of the Palestinian Authority, are saying. Itamar, it is so valuable to have your service and your team monitor the Palestinian media, radio, television, print media, and Facebook and YouTube as well. We appreciate what you're doing as a service to the rest of the world in reality. So thank you so very much. Haksameyakmar, Rosh Hashanah coming up, Feast of Trumpets, and have a blessed, blessed holiday season. Thank you very much, and you should all have a good year. There's a key region of this world that we cover every single week here on Prophecy Today weekend, and that's the European Union. That is, I do believe, the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire, Daniel chapter 7. And thus, it is important to understand what's happening in that region of the world, a very key region, as I said, we talk about the political with John Rood and then get into the prophetic as well. John, thank you for being available. That's a key report that you give us each week. And I want to ask you about the fact that the White House is trying to cover up details of the Trump-Ukrainian call, or at least that's the headline in the BBC media operation there in London, England. Now, I don't know if you've ever been into the Ukraine. I've been to Kiev but uh, and some other locations there, but never into Crimea. And Crimea is really what I am excited about understanding more of in light of the Ukraine. Crimea, of course, was taken over by Russia to be their warm water port there on the Black Sea. Have you been able to get into the Ukraine at all, John? I haven't been in the Ukraine specifically, of course, uh, very aware of the geopolitics there. I've been on the Black Sea, Bulgaria, Turkey, and, of course, the the Russian ships, the Ukrainian ships are coming through the strait there in Istanbul. The focus, uh, of course, in the United States is 99% on the United States, but I, I think that Many people are not really aware of, of the Ukraine geopolitics, the importance of Crimea. And it's interesting, we see the same situation of a hypercritical atmosphere that is amplifying so many of these international relations and actions. That is the case, and that's why I wanted to just chat briefly with you. I know the European Union would like to include the Ukraine as a part of one of their member states. Uh, is is that correct? Well, the U.S. ambassador to the EU, he's working with the Ukraine on this situation. The European Union is always looking to expand, particularly in nation states where they can gain a big influence. They've done a lot of influence through their aid, and they've done well in that. At one time, they were the largest aid organization in the world. They've given... 15 billion euros in support to uh, democratic reform in Ukraine since 2014. So they've actually done 
quite a bit there, but of course the instability, they want to work on that before they would be full members. But as we saw the switch from the Warsaw Pact nations, yes, Ukraine is in the position to be looking for support from the EU and influence, absolutely. Well, we're talking about the Ukraine possibly wanting to be included in the member states of the European Union, while there's another of those European Union member states wants to get out. Of course, that's the United Kingdom and Brexit. Let me talk to you a bit about Brexit, uh, the things that we know, and I'm going to do them really quickly so we can get some quick answers from you, John. What about the fact that there's a breather for Boris Yeltsin since uh, Brussels rejected the Brexit deadline set by uh, the French President Macron? Is that a good move or bad? Well, we've had a few deadlines. The French President Macron has gone in and sort of uh, unilaterally mentioned a deadline that there has to be plans to replace the Irish backstop by the end of the month or everything is just over. The EU has not gone along with that. So theoretically, you would think then that Boris Johnson has a little bit more time, except everything now is leading up to the October European Council, which is October 17th and 18th. This is when the EU 28 heads of state will meet. And typically, when there's a crisis, they will do these late-night sessions and try to solve until something is ironed out. Except now, in the last few hours, the EU ambassadors have agreed that there will be no late-night session uh, unless plans are presented as soon as possible. So there's deadlines flying all over the place. It is a fix for the U.K., to work out the Brexit, it does appear they often will come up with something new at the last minute, but it is really running down to the last moments. And I understand it's quite a gamble between those in the United Kingdom who want to remain within the European Union and those who want to get out. This is their last chance. Uh, Is there a, a possibility that those who want to remain would win out over this and the United Kingdom never leave the European Union. That's really an amazing possibility. You know, the the Remainers, or they're called the Brexiteers on the other side, the Remainers have really obstructed now for more than three years the process for the U.K. to leave the European Union. It's just been relentless actions to disregard, neutralize, and delay Brexit. And it looks like they won't stop at anything or everything until this is accomplished. Now they forced the prime minister and have introduced, really, a bill which has become law. It's called the Ben Bill, B-E-N-N. Boris Johnson calls it the Surrender Bill. But it literally forces, it's the current law, it literally forces to be another extension after October 31st. Now they're thinking that might possibly extend to January 31st if the EU agrees. So the, the Remainers are in control. They're in control. So we don't see what plan will come forth. In a way, the only certainty we have here is the uncertainty. People are getting quite heated up in the Parliament. Yeah, I would say, and some of the language that Boris Johnson used, quite interesting, quite colorful as well. 
John, thank you so very much. You've told us exactly what we think we know. We're not even sure about that. We'll have to stay on top of the story. October is a key month. Appreciate it. We'll talk again next week, buddy. Thank you, Jimmy. Steve Herzig is the National Director of Friends of Israel, longtime friend, broadcast partner with us when it comes to the Jewish High Holy Days. And upcoming, there's going to be two holy days, Rosh Hashanah, which means the new year, and the Feast of Trumpets, both on the same day. So, of course, we go to Steve Herzig, who has a Jewish background and now is working as a born-again Bible-believing Christian among the Jewish people of the entire world. Steve happens to be the National Director for Friends of Israel here in America. has a great book, in fact, two volumes of it, entitled Jewish Culture and Customs. We have it available at our home site, prophecytoday.com. Go to the Prophecy Bookstore, or you can go to foi.org. That would be the website for Friends of Israel, and you can make your purchase. It would be a great item to have in your library for great research. Haksameyak, Steve, thank you for being available with us. Well, thanks, Jimmy. Happy 5,780 to you. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's the new year upcoming. And I want to find out about that. Explain Rosh Hashanah and then trumpets, and then we'll come back and ask some more specific questions. Sure, Jimmy. I'd be glad to do that. Rosh Hashanah is the civil new year. Israel has two new years, two main ones anyway, the religious new year, which falls at Passover, and the civil new year, which falls out on the seventh month. Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year. And, Jimmy, for Jewish people celebrating Rosh Hashanah 5,780, it is believed traditionally that that's the exact date that God created Adam and Eve, the creation. And so while most Jewish people would not recognize a young earth scientifically, they would divide themselves scientifically from religiously because, according to Jewish tradition, the earth is less than 5,000 years old, 5,780. That's the way I was raised, Jimmy, and I, believe it or not, and I, I know you do believe it, I believe it. I believe the earth is less than, certainly less than 10,000 years, and I certainly wouldn't be surprised if it's less than 6,000 years. But either way, Jewish people understand that's the year that they have for Rosh Hashanah. It is a Feast of Trumpets as well, as outlined in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 23 outlines the seven biblical feasts so important in the calendar, and I think applicable to the Church of Jesus Christ, don't you? I absolutely do, because when you look back at those first four spring feasts located there in Leviticus 23, we understand by studying the New Testament, Jesus Christ was crucified on Passover, buried on unleavened bread, resurrected on first fruits, and the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost as he promised the Holy Spirit would do, and thus that established the church, a great relationship between the Jewish ideas of the feast days and, of course, the relationship to the church and the establishment of it. You know, it's interesting that they do celebrate creation on Rosh Hashanah, and I've seen, Steve, you've probably been there and seen this as well, but I've seen on Rosh Hashanah just thousands, up to 10,000 Jewish men come up to the Temple Mount and blow their shofars because, as you said, it's as well the Feast of Trumpets, 
in celebration of creation. It's a very important time as far as the Sanhedrin and the others are located there in Jerusalem. Uh, They're the ones trying to rebuild that next temple. And what's so interesting to me is that they are welcoming the 70 nations at this time. They're going to have a big celebration there as well, are they not? Yes, they are. And you know, Jimmy, what's really important about Rosh Hashanah for your listeners and for you and me is that there's a reading of a text that you and I look at in amazement, and that is found in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham is taking his son. And as God says to him, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And they go on a three-day journey. And this is read in the, in the synagogues on Rosh Hashanah. They, they take that three-day journey, but before they go, uh, Abraham stops his servants, and he says, I and the lad will return. Even though he knows he's supposed to slay his son, he conveys the message to his servants that he's going to return with his son. They take the three-day journey. His son says to him, hey, Dad, I've got the fire, I've got the wood, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, in the text, the Lord himself will provide the sacrifice, my son. And so Isaac, as a, as a young teenager, possibly even an adult, goes with Abraham willingly, and Abraham is willingly uh, obliged, and according to his will, he'll decide, yes, I'm going to slay my son, believing that he's going to rise from the grave. And do you know that Jewish people read that text at Rosh Hashanah? It's an amazing story, and it has so many things in it that Christians could certainly relate to as it relates to God the Father offering his only son uh, and rising the third day. Boy, that's a great message, and thank you for reminding us of that, Steve. By the way, all of that types of information will be in Steve's two volumes of Jewish Customs and Culture. You may want to purchase those. Two quick questions before I let you go. How do the Jewish people celebrate Rosh Hashanah? Is there anything special they do? Oh, yeah, Jimmy. They they believe that repentance is the key word at this time. They are well aware of their sin. They know that the Day of Atonement, 10 days later, will follow, and they know that their names are going to be found in the Book of Life or in the Book of Judgment. And so they, for 10 days, will repent, and during those 10 days, try to go to people that they know and make things right. If they owed money or if they they borrowed something, they'll return it. If they said something negative, they want to apologize for it. So whatever, whatever it is, repentance is the key. And sin is a key thing. And that's fascinating to me, Jimmy, that sin is so important. It is fascinating to me as well. And I've had, by the way, Jewish people from out of Israel call me and find me wherever I am in the world and do exactly that, repent for maybe any way they mistreated me. Uh, Just exciting to watch, very much so. Well, one final question. Always ask you, how do we use these holy days to introduce the Messiah to our Jewish friends? That's a great question, Jimmy, and I think one of the foundational questions to ask, what can we do to reach out? Number one, we can certainly pray, because some of our your listeners, I'm sure, might not even know who a Jewish person is. Maybe they've never met one. I, I'm sometimes the first Jewish person some Christians have ever met. But praying is, is certainly good. But for those who, who know a Jewish person, and they know the holiday is coming, it is coming on sunset, September 29th, I would simply say, Wish them a Happy New Year. 
tell them, you know, from the book of Leviticus that it's the Feast of Trumpets, that they're going to sound the shofar, and, and you wish them a wonderful, happy New Year. And when they eat their apples and honey, and, the, and they will, in recognition of a hopeful, sweet New Year, say to their Jewish friend, I trust you have a sweet and happy and healthy New Year. What a way to start a conversation with their Jewish friend. That is absolutely correct, because I've done that as well, and it does open their minds to at least listen to something that you may have to say and do it with love and much prayer, my dear friend. By the way, that greeting, if you want to use it in Hebrew, is Shona Tova. That means have a blessed, happy new year. Shona Tova, use that. Steve, thank you again. You know, we use you several times during the year, during the high Jewish holy days. We'll probably get back to you about Yom Kippur as well. But thank you for your availability here on the broadcast today. We appreciate it, buddy. God bless. You know, Jimmy, anytime. Thank you. Always love to have a conversation with Steve Herzig, and especially when we're talking about the Jewish High Holy Days. This one, of course, Rosh Hashanah, but also the Feast of Trumpets. That was a very exciting conversation. And do use these special holy days to try to make contact with one of your Jewish friends and introduce the true Messiah to them. We're going to have to take a break right now. After the news in the next segment, we're going to have one more broadcast partner. That's David James. We're going to be talking about the rapture. Yeah, and the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, has been talking about it as well. You need to hear the conversation I'll have with David James. It's upcoming in a moment right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome back to Prophecy Today. We move in to our last half hour. Thank you for giving me these 90 minutes of your Saturday, or whenever you may be listening to the broadcast, to understand current events in light of biblical prophecy. So glad you could join us. I've got one more broadcast partner, David James, standing by. We're going to be talking about the rapture. The British Broadcasting Corporation did a whole hour on the rapture of the church. We're going to talk about it as well in just a moment. I want to remind you that we have a poll question that I would love for you to respond to, if you will. Go to my home page, prophecytoday.com. Scroll down on the left-hand column, and you'll find the poll question. Here it is. As Jews around the world celebrate Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and a celebration of creation some 5,780 years ago, do you believe that what is happening in our world today could indicate that the Jewish New Year, 5780, could be the year of the rapture of the church? Please answer our poll question. It's at prophecytoday.com, homepage, left-hand column, if you will. And also, you might as well check out our trips to Israel. We do about 80 a year. My son, Jim Jr., went to the doctor the other day, and he talked to the doctor, and then the doctor came out, told his chief nurse, hey, mark down this information from this young man. I want to go to Israel with him and take my family. Boy, that was exciting to me. So find out all the information you need to know about our trips to Israel at prophecytoday.com. 
go to Joshua Travel. We now bring to these microphones David James. David and I have a weekly conversation focused on an issue of great importance to the body of Christ, to the church. We need to understand it from a biblical perspective so it will affect our daily walk with our Lord and how he wants us to live from day to day as we wait for the call out of the heavenlies at the rapture of the church. In fact, that is the subject for this conversation this week with David the rapture. David told me that he had heard a broadcast on the BBC. That's the British Broadcasting Corporation. Their network is the largest in the world. They have more representatives, uh, reporters, correspondents all around the world than any other broadcasting facility. And as you mentioned, David, you gave me this thought that, hey, maybe we could touch base with the rapture of the church and all that's going on. But before we do that, we've also asked our listeners to let us know their thoughts about our discussions. And this week, we received a rebuke on Facebook concerning last week's discussion of Jonathan Kahn and his new book, The Oracle. Uh, we ask you to respond to this concern. So what can you tell us about how you dealt with this email? Well, you're right, Jimmy, and we really do appreciate the opportunity to interact with our listeners and to respond to any concerns or criticisms they might have. And, of course, we're always happy to get words of encouragement as well. This wasn't one of those. As you mentioned, one of our listeners did post a comment on your Facebook page taking us to task for challenging Jonathan Kahn. This listener wrote, you called Jonathan Kahn a false prophet because we did not see his quote-unquote what-ifs concerning blood moons. He does not call himself a prophet, so how can he be false? A false prophet does not proclaim the gospel to a lost world, Jewish and Gentile. Rabbi Kahn does. You owe him a huge apology for his loss of book sales and damaged reputation. Call him and talk to him personally so he can defend his position. It's the right and Christian thing to do. So we don't have time to go over my uh, response in detail, so I'll just highlight a few of the main points. First, I have personally interacted with Jonathan Kahn several times over the years. And also in my two books and in articles, I've clearly documented hundreds of hours of research to prove beyond all reasonable doubt that Jonathan Kahn has mishandled the Word of God, misrepresented historical facts, and manipulated historical data. And unfortunately, he has yet to acknowledge that he's done any of this. And besides this, whenever someone puts their ideas out into the public square, they can rightly be questioned publicly without going to them personally. If that weren't the case, then no one would ever be able to write a book or movie review. I, I don't think we owe him an, a personal apology for a loss in book sales or a damaged reputation. His book sales are in the millions, while Mine are actually only in the thousands, and as for his reputation, any damage that he's experienced is really because of his own words, not mine, and the fact is many people have taken him to task over the years because of his teachings. You know, it's interesting how people phrase their discussions on this subject to us, and it's very interesting the way that one was phrased, and your response, I read it, and it was very good. I appreciate you doing that, David. Well, a couple of days ago, as I was mentioning, you sent me a link to an hour-long BBC broadcast discussing the rapture of the church, 
and the modern history of this particular teaching. I thought it was very interesting that they should choose to deal with this issue. Well, I agree. And as I've mentioned several times in our weekly discussions, I'm one of the administrators of a Facebook group that focuses on biblical dispensationalism. And one of the group's regular contributors posted a link to that BBC program. The guy who posted it, a man named William Watson, is a professor of history at Colorado Christian University. And he published a book several years ago titled Dispensationalism Before Darby, meaning John Nelson Darby. And I understand that he actually actually knows one of the people on the BBC broadcast, a man named Crawford Gibbon. Now, Gibbon is a professor at Queen's University in Belfast, Ireland, and he was raised in an Open Brethren Church, a group that we would know in the United States uh, as Plymouth Brethren, and they trace their roots back to John Nelson Darby in the 1820s. And it was Darby's study of the Scriptures that led to what I would say is the modern resurgence of dispensational theology, something that really has shaped conservative evangelicalism for much of the last two centuries. You know, I'm familiar with the Plymouth Brethren because of my 16 years as a missionary with Word of Life in Hungary, since we had a close relationship with many of those churches and had many students in our Bible Institute who had a Brethren background. You know, the Brethren Church in Hungary is consistently where you and I would be concerning eschatology, holding to dispensational theology and a pre-tribulational rapture of the Church. And I've spoken in their churches many times. And as I recall, when you were teaching for us in Hungary back in the 1990s and early 2000s, you spoke in many of those same churches, and we did conferences together. And another interesting point is, as I recall, this doctrine was brought to Hungary about a century ago by an ethnically Jewish Christian woman. So the fact that the BBC was covering the rapture definitely caught my attention. You know, one of the things, David, that came up in the BBC broadcast was something that we hear all the time, and that is that dispensationalism and the pre-tribulational rapture of the church is a new idea that Darby came up with less than 200 years ago. How, as you have been confronted by these people, how do you respond to that charge that this is a new doctrine and should not be taken so seriously? Well, that's really a great question, and I do run up against it all the time. And I answer it using an illustration related to a course I teach on understanding Roman Catholicism, which I teach several times a year. In fact, I just finished updating my notes and PowerPoints for this course yesterday because I'll be teaching it at the Maine Word of Life campus in upstate New York in a couple of weeks. You know, the Reformation was really kicked off by Martin Luther in 1517 with his 95 theses or statements that were written to protest against the Pope at the time. And even though many others had been saying many of the same things concerning the gospel uh, for the previous 200 years prior to that, he really was the catalyst. And you know, the Counter-Reformation was a pushback against reformers like Luther and Zwingli and Huss and Calvin and others, and came as a result of the Council of Trent, which was held in Rome from 1545 to 1563. Now, one of the arguments against reform 
Reformers was essentially the same one we hear all the time, and that this was a new doctrine that had never been taught before, and therefore it must not be right. But, you know, this is a question of historical theology, not biblical theology. So the question is whether or not it's even a legitimate argument at all. The fact is, the Reformers didn't come up with something new, but rather they recovered the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, apart from works and apart from the sacraments of the Catholic Church. The Reformers recovered what had been lost by the Church for nearly 1,500 years. So at the Council of Trent, the movement to recover the biblical gospel was less than 30 to 40 years old, but that doesn't mean it was wrong just because it was claimed to be new. The same is true of dispensationalism in the pre-tribulational rapture of the Church. These aren't new doctrines. These are doctrines that were taught by Jesus and the Apostles. Pre-tribulational dispensationalism isn't a new doctrine. I would call it a recovered doctrine. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, a recovered doctrine. Well, the BBC broadcast spent quite a bit of time talking about John Nelson Darby as a theologian and as someone who has had a huge impact on conservative evangelicalism over the last two centuries. And by the way, uh, thinking about him being the one who founded dispensationalism and the rapture of the church, I've read the book of First Thessalonians, chapter 4, and seems like Paul knew something about that as well as he explained how the rapture would unfold. David, I'd like to shift gears just a bit and talk about our upcoming School of Prophets conference in December, because the course that you're going to be teaching is God's plan through the ages. It actually fits right into today's discussion. But before we get to that, I thought I'd just briefly explain the course that I'll be teaching that same time period. Now, the dates, jot them down. If you can come and join us, we'd love to have you come. will be December the 2nd. That begins at Monday night sessions. We'll have two sessions I'll be teaching. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And by noon or at the latest 1 o'clock, we'll release you so you'll have time to get home probably before the sun goes down. Uh, But this will be a great time. So those dates, December 2nd through the 5th, David is going to be teaching God's plan through the ages, as I just mentioned. I'm going to ask him to explain that more. I'm going to be concluding my three-part study on prophecy through the Bible. In parts one and two, I've gone through almost all of the Bible, two-thirds of it, and looking at each book and the prophetic passages in them. going to conclude that with part three, and we'll be looking at all the Old Testament prophets and then the book of Revelation. It'll be an interesting study. Hope you can come and join with us. There's a way that you can register. If you go to my website, the banner over the website, ultimately as it rotates, will come up to School of Prophets Conference. And there, if you'll click on that, you can go to How to Register. Again, the website, prophecytoday.com. Go there. And make plans to join us at our School of Prophets conference. It will be held in December, the 2nd through the 5th. And so as we wrap it up today, David, I'd like for you to tell our listeners about the course that you'll be teaching for us in December. Sure. Well, the way I describe the course briefly is that we go from eternity past to eternity future in 10 hours or less. Uh, It starts with a brief introduction to dispensationalism, then sets God's program from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 within the theological framework of dispensationalism. And I would say that the Bible's overarching theme is God establishing His kingdom of righteousness 
And uh, the Bible records God's revelation about this from the creation of the present heavens and earth in Genesis to the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 22. And I've had people tell me over the years that after taking this course, they finally really understand what the Bible's all about. Yeah, that is a terrific course. I've sat through it myself, appreciated it so very much. Davey, you do an excellent job on teaching God's plan through the ages. Well, let me remind you, that's going to be taught by David James at our School of Prophets Conference in Chattanooga, Tennessee, December the 2nd through the 5th, and I'll be teaching Prophecy Through the Bible, Part 3. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com. There you can get all the information you need and how you can register for the conference. David, appreciate uh, the input, and thank you for sending that link along from the BBC. Very interesting that a media operation like that is discussing the rapture of the church. I'm, I'm pleased we had this conversation. By the way, we'll have another one next week. We'll talk to you then, buddy. I'll look forward to it, Jimmy. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to open the Bible. and We'll take a look at the book, putting together all the information we gleaned from our broadcast partners today, and we'll see what God's Word has to say about it. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, our broadcast partners came to the broadcast table with great informative reports. All of these reports right on the mark. You know, in a moment, I'm going to rehearse the lead stories of my broadcast partners and give you my prophetic perspective. 
But first, let me remind you how to listen or re-listen to these reports if you had to miss them. Go to prophecytoday.com, that's my website address, and then go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. We have archived all of these reports from the broadcast partners, and we've saved them so you can listen to them at your convenience. And if you have time, would you please send a link to your friends so that they may be able to hear these reports as well? It will assist them in understanding the times in which we are living. Now let me give you my prophetic perspective on the news items for this week. Ken Timmerman, he reports on geopolitical events happening around the world, and his report, the lead story for Ken, was Iran's President Rouhani making a statement at the United Nations General Assembly to all the world leaders that Israel is supporting Islamic State. That's a very ironic statement to make. In fact, the Islamic State terrorist organization wants to wipe Israel off the face of the earth as well. Why would Israel, the Jewish state of Israel, be helping the Islamic State perpetrate their hatred and terroristic activities on the world? In fact, Ezekiel 38 speaks specifically about Iran as one of those players in that alignment of nations, Ezekiel 38.5, you'll see the first name there, Persia. Well, that's modern-day Iran. Until 1936, that was their name. And Persia really has an interesting relationship with Israel in the past, but not so today. The Iranians want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, as do Islamic State. And that is absolute proof that Israel is not supporting Islamic State. David Dolan gives us our Middle East news update, longtime journalist in that region of the world. He talked about the Israeli president, President Rivlin, tapping Prime Minister Netanyahu to form the next Israeli government, or at least giving him 28 days to see if he can make that happen. Human government was established by the Lord back in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, and he has used human government down through the years to accomplish his plan, his will, through political leaders making political decisions that would set prophecy in place and the movement of all the nations. By the way, Revelation chapter 17 and verse 17 says, and that's in that portion of the prophetic book of Revelation, talking about the false church era, that would be the first half of the seven-year tribulation period, and there it says that the Lord will put into the hearts of world leaders, political world leaders, lost political world leaders, to fulfill his will by making political decisions that will do exactly that. Israel needs to have a government in place so that the Lord can direct the Jewish state. Itamar Marcus brought some very important information to us. He was talking about the campaign by Palestinian Media Watch, which Itamar heads up. They've been working to take down the Palestinian Facebook page, which has been promoting hatred and inciting the Palestinians to kill Jews. The Palestinian media is all incitement and lies. 
By the way, the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians will continue all the way through the seven-year period of time, concluding as foretold in the book of Obadiah, verses 15 to 18, when the Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes back, gives all that he has promised to the Jewish people, and then allows the Jews to destroy the Palestinians as if they have never been. That's what the Bible says. I teach it, and I believe it. John Rue talks to us with his report from the European Union. This time he was talking about the Ukraine. We did not get in necessarily to the problems that President Trump is having as it relates to his conversation with the new president of the Ukraine, but we also talked about Crimea. This is the southern part of the Ukraine. It's a peninsula that was taken over by Russia because Russia needed a warm water port. This plays a key role in the scenario of Russia in the end times, which is talked about, of course, in Ezekiel 38. They're the leader of an alignment of Islamic nations who will try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. Steve Herzig, the National Director of Friends of Israel, came to report and give us all the information about the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and this is 5780, by the way, a very important Jewish holy day, but it's on the same day as Feast of Trumpets. Leviticus chapter 23 talks about the seven Jewish feasts that God gave the Jewish people, and it is a foretelling, a prophetic scenario for the Jewish people as laid out in those seven Jewish feasts. And then David James and I talked about the rapture of the church. We did that because the British Broadcasting Corporation, the largest news-gathering organization in the world, had a one-hour report on the rapture. Now, what they said was not exactly biblical. Let me give you some verses that will help you understand how the Bible approaches the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, and Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, where John the Revelator wrote, And I heard, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither. That's apocalyptic literature that is interpreted by 1 Thessalonians, where it says, Jesus will shout, the archangel will shout, and the trump of God will sound and the rapture, which is the event that takes up all born-again, Bible-believing Christians into the heavenlies to be forevermore with Jesus Christ. And may I say that that BBC report on the rapture, that is a real event in the future. In fact, it is the next event on God's calendar of activities for the end times. And dear friend, that rapture could happen even today. And having made that statement, there's nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today.